Y'all can take a seat. I wanna, I wanna pray for us really quick, if that's okay, before we jump into everything God has for us this evening. Father, we're here tonight and people come into this place and their mind can't be completely and entirely focused on you. God, there's things that are wrapping people up in here that they've dealt with for a long time. And a lot of the issue comes from the fact that we are not getting in the proper posture. God, your grace is like water flows to the lowest elevation. So Lord, we bring ourselves low right now. God, this isn't about me. This isn't about Caleb or Austin. This isn't even about the alternative. This is about lifting up the name of your risen son, Jesus, and it is about his glory. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do in here. For you guys, I would just ask that you pray for yourselves right now that God would speak to you powerfully, that he would break the boxes on your hearts and your minds as you come in here with whatever it is that you've got going on. And then I would ask you, if you could, if you would pray for me, that God would use me in a way that is effective, that I would empty every word of myself and that it's all marinated in his word and by his Holy Spirit. God, we love you and we praise you. Use this time that we have together for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, a little over four years ago now, I came home from college for the summer and uh, I noticed that I wasn't in what one might call the best shape of their life. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'll admit this, I also wasn't practicing what one would probably call excellent nutritional habits. Uh, but let me just go ahead and defend myself quickly. Um, here's the thing, in college you're balling on a budget and you quickly come to the realization that healthy food is a lot more expensive than Chick-fil-A. So all I'm saying is that I did what I had to do, okay? We've all been in those situations. And so I just want to point out one thing, though, uh, that's kind of crucial to understanding what happened to me, and that's that I had pretty much quit working out entirely. And um, when I say pretty much, I mean 100%. And so I had quit working out entirely, and it was just a real issue. I mean, it was not like me because I've always been really active. Even in college, I was active, but there was something about this particular semester that had just gotten the best of me. And I don't really know what it was. Maybe it was just tough for me, but it was kind of at that point, you know, like in college, I would be walking up a flight of stairs and I would get to the top and I was having to make conscious efforts to not be breathing and cause a scene. Like to make sure that nobody else knew that on the inside, I felt like I had just finished competing in the Ironman triathlon. It's like one of those, if people came up to me and were like, hey Luke, how you doing? Let's have a conversation. I'd be like, give me a minute, okay? Like, you know, there's, those, are, those four stairs are huge, man. And that's kind of where I was from a health perspective. So I wasn't like morbidly obese, uh, but let's just say that I also had a little bit of an inner tube thing going around on my midsection. And so I'll tell you, when I got home that summer, 
My insecurity was only magnified when I walked into the kitchen and I saw my brother, my younger brother, Alex, for the first time. And uh, it threw me off because he had his shirt off and I was very confused uh, about what had happened. You got to understand something though. Like Alex and I look nothing alike, okay? Alex has blonde hair, blue eyes. I had always been taller and in much better shape. And uh, that, was a, that was just no longer the case. I don't know what happened, uh, quite honestly. He had grown to like six foot four, Okay, he had lost all of his childhood chub. His blonde hair was like flowing down to his shoulders and he looked like he'd been chiseled by angels and belongs in the pantheon of Greek gods. And so I was, the dude looks like Thor and I was like, uh, well, I don't, you know? So things were, were really eating at my own insecurity, but he asked me just kind of casually, he's like, hey man, you want to go with me to the gym tomorrow? And I don't know if he was trying to like say something, but I was like, yeah, no, I mean, I'll go with you. I should probably get back into that kind of routine. That'd be good. But what I didn't understand is that I had actually just signed up for my first experience with CrossFit. So uh, let's just say this. I walked in there that next morning. I'm telling y'all, I felt like a fish out of water. I mean, the class before ours looked intense. People were doing things that I didn't even know was physically possible. And so as I walk in there, I mean, I see some lady and she's lifting. She starts screaming and I'm like, ma'am, are you okay? And my brother's like, uh, he grabs me by the arm. He's like, he's new here. Sorry. I don't know. He's like, dude, she's just lifting. I was like, sound like she was screaming in pain to me, but agree to disagree. And um, it was crazy. As I'm walking through the whole day, I notice I'm the only one not wearing a t-shirt with this acronym that says W-A-Y-M-O. And so I'm like, Alex, you know, what is, what is W-A-Y-M-O? What is that? And he goes, oh, well, you know, this is a CrossFit class, but we kind of have like our own name for it. It's W-A-Y-M-O and it stands for Waymo, which means what are you made of? And on the inside, I'm thinking, uh, not much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, not what these people are made of, but that wasn't the only new acronym I heard throughout the day. I don't know what you guys have experienced as far as CrossFit, but you walk in there, it's like they're speaking a different language. I had people coming up to me and they were like, hey man, you new here? What's your push press, Max? And I was like, my what? Who is Max? You know, like I, I have no idea. I don't know anything that they're saying. And I'll tell you all this because uh, I've dealt with it emotionally. Um, during that first workout, my life was flashing before my eyes. I think I was within a heartbeat or two of cardiac arrest. And that next morning when I woke up, I was like, this is not good. I just like, I don't, I don't even know if God can save me from this. I tried rolling over. I was like, no. I tried sitting up. I was like, definitely not. And so I didn't see another human being for two days. Not because I didn't want to. I just physically could not move my extremities. And that's just kind of where I was at in that moment. But that next week, Alex asked me, he was like, hey man, you want to go to the gym with me? And I agreed. And I'm telling you, by the end of that summer, I had muscles in places. I didn't even know you could grow muscles because I kept going. Not when I felt good enough to go, not when the pain had subsided, but through the pain that my body was suffering through. Now, why should you care? Why does that matter to you at all? Why share this story? Because your ability to persevere through hardship will determine the power of your impact for the kingdom of God. Not the size of your platform, not the people around you, 
Not the potential within you, but your ability to persevere and endure suffering, not just for the sake of the gospel, but by the very power of the gospel. And some of you find yourselves in the midst of trial tonight. You come in here and you've got maybe some financial stress. And so you're not living month to month. You're really living more like meal to meal. You're paralyzed by anxiety. God called you to step out and do something in faith, but fear dressed itself up as responsibility and the logical thing to do. And so in an attempt to please other people, your life looks great to them, but on the inside, you're miserable because you didn't step into what God called you to step into. Maybe you're here tonight and it's a breakup. You have no idea how to deal with this kind of pain. You've never felt it before. Maybe you're in here tonight and your marriage is in shambles. You don't know how you got here, but you sure don't know how you're going to get back to where you were when you made your vows. Maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's your health. Maybe you've lost someone in this past year and it was devastating. Maybe you're insecure about what other people think of you and it drives the way that you interact with people. It could be your past or guilt or shame. It could be opposition that's hindering you. Maybe it's that very thing that you pray so desperately God would take away from you. This thing that you would change about yourself in a heartbeat, but for whatever reason, you can't or it's just not happening. And so you are seriously frustrated as you step in here tonight. But whatever it is, you are in here tonight and you're struggling. And I'm not here to weigh your suffering against mine or anyone else's. I want to shed perspective on our pain, the power to endure it and persevere through it. And so if you would, I want to get back to the scripture that Austin read to kick us off. I want to get back into 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 13. So if you have a Bible or the Bible app on your phone, go ahead and get there right now. If you don't have any of those, uh, we'll pray for your salvation this evening. But 2 Timothy, that's where we're going to be. And I want to set the scene for us as you are searching for that scripture. You know, Paul writes this letter to Timothy from a place of great perseverance and endurance himself. Paul is in chains, imprisoned in Rome for the second time, but this time it's a little bit different. He's under the reign of the emperor Nero. And so as he's under the Roman emperor Nero, Nero is persecuting the Christian church. He is doing everything he can to imprison Christian leaders, Paul included. And 2 Timothy is essentially Paul's last letter, his last words to his mentee, Timothy. And he makes that reality abundantly clear as we read this letter. It is a deeply, deeply personal letter. And 2 Timothy would in fact be the last letter that Paul writes before being martyred. But before he's killed, he writes this letter of encouragement to Timothy, and the letter is really a call to have a bold, unrelenting endurance and perseverance in the gospel in spite of your suffering. And so he opens in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Some of you step back as you're in here tonight and you, you really come to the alternative or any kind of service of any sort and it helps you to step back and look at the landscape of your life and see those trials and pains that you're dealing with that are standing in front of you really well. But every single time you come in here, you never find solution. You go, how can I possibly beat this? 
when it's been crushing me for so long? How can I possibly defeat something that I've never felt like I can get victory over? Paul says, be strengthened by grace. Not just any grace. Some of you look for grace in the form of approval from other people, whether that's from a spouse, whether that's from a boyfriend or girlfriend or parents. Paul says, be strengthened by grace. And it's not just any grace. It's not the grace that Paul has shown Timothy. It's nothing like that. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus available to you. Be strengthened by the holy assistance, the favor of God that has been extended to you only by the cross of Christ. Be strengthened by it. And I'll tell you this, that same grace that saved you by faith, it is available for you to be strengthened in it. But I don't think that we ever think of grace like that. We don't. Whenever we think about grace, we think that is something that is simply offered, but it's not something I can really touch. I can't grab hold of grace. But here's the difference. He says be strengthened in it. And so when we read this, it makes me think, how much more boldly would we be living our lives if we weren't simply aware of the grace that has been extended to us by way of the cross, but if we allowed ourselves to grab hold of it and be strengthened by it? You know, Paul knows a little bit about living a life that's strengthened by grace. In Acts 14, he gets stoned at Lystra and he's left for dead, but he gets up unknowingly to the people that had stoned him. And he says, hey, he goes to these other believers and says, it is through many trials that we enter the kingdom of God. And if that's the case, he is then strengthened by the grace that is available to him in Jesus. And he goes back and he preaches the same gospel that he got stoned for to the same city that stoned him. You look at 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that a messenger of Satan had given him a thorn in his flesh. But when he pleaded with Jesus to take it away, Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know what's funny? The enemy keeps you safe unintentionally sometimes. He tries to keep you from your calling because he knows that it will frustrate you. But God will allow that to happen because he knows that your time of frustration is a fertile season for preparation. And so as you look at this, you can also be aware of the fact that in that same sense, sometimes God will allow Satan to send storms your way because Satan, though he intends to sink you, what really happens is God strategically utilizes that storm to water the seeds of your own sanctification. And so you might have moments where you are overwhelmed by your trials and your pains and your sufferings, but you will never be overcome because the same grace available to you in Jesus is the same Jesus that rose from the grave and has overcome the world and everything in it, even death. Paul tells Timothy, pass on what I've taught you to others. Raise up leaders, teach others to teach. Pass the ministry on because ministry is not some sprint that ends with you on a pedestal. It is a race that has to be passed from generation to generation. So he says, I'm giving you the baton. As soon as I give you this baton, start looking for who you're gonna give it to. And as we're here, you're thinking, man, well, that sounds great. That really does. That sounds, that sounds great. Be strengthened by the grace available to me in Jesus. But why? 
I mean, why? I mean, these painful realities in my life and trials that I can't seem to get over, what is the point in being strong if I still ultimately find myself having to battle with something that's not going away easily? And I'd tell you to look at what Paul says in verses three through six here. He really starts to get into the meat of the conversation as to why it is that we are supposed to have this grace. We're supposed to grab hold of it and make it available not only to ourselves, but to others so that we can endure what we're going through. Look at what he says. He says, share in suffering. How? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, and it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon talked about this verse. He said, if you desire delicacy, don't join the army. A soldier's calling is not to be linked to an easy life. If you desire ease and comfort, don't join the army of Christ. For a Christian's profession and these do not go together. So what's the point? What is the point in being strong in grace, even though you're continually having to fight the same battle over and over and over? Let me tell you something, Christian. Delicacy does not win wars, but perseverance always prevails. And if you are breathing and you're here tonight, you are still in the fight. And if you're still in the fight, you can struggle well because if you've enlisted in the army of Christ, then victory is yours. But that doesn't mean that you're exempt from fighting in the trenches. You look at Matthew 16. So in Matthew 16, Jesus says, hey, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and pick up your cross. That right there is the call to enlist in the army of Christ. And so as he makes this proclamation, we've kind of adopted this weird thought process with what Jesus says here. Whenever someone says, hey, pick up your cross and follow him, we've made it to be something like there's a specific burden that only we deal with. And we're like, that's their cross to bear. That, that doesn't make any sense to first century Jews that Jesus was teaching at this time. When Jesus said that to first century Jews, to the disciples, as this is happening, they only associate one thing with a cross. It's a humiliating, torturous instrument of death. Jesus is not saying, hey, I'm going to give you a specific burden. Good luck with that and walk away. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, would you die for me? Will you surrender your life to me? Not parts of your life to me. Will you surrender your life to me? And will you do it to the point of death? And not just death, but death on a cross. Those who want to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life will find it. Will you be a good soldier of Christ or will you be an ordinary soldier of comfort? Will you pick up your cross or will you drop it the moment you get a splinter? Because let me tell you something, if you want to do things for the kingdom of God in a powerful way, then you need to hold on to your cross even when it hurts, especially when it hurts. You look at the examples that Paul gives us. He says, be like a soldier. Look at how soldiers behave. They don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Their aim is to please the one who enlisted them. That's their goal. 
He says, you're not here to please others. You don't get entangled in distractions that are going to make you a less impactful soldier. That's not how we behave. You serve a commanding officer who just so happens to be the commander of angels' armies. And if you want to enlist in his army, then there are certain things that you have to do and certain things that you're going to have to give up in order to do that. But it really doesn't matter what everyone else wants from you because you're called to do what Christ has called you to do. He says, be like an athlete. If you want to compete, you have to submit yourself under certain rules before you agree to compete. You can't make rules up. He says you run the race in a way that is honoring and faithful in the way that Jesus called you to run your race because you have to understand that if you are to run it your own way, it's not going to lead anywhere. He says you run your race according to the way that Christ has called you to because that road is designed for your good and his glory. He says, be like a farmer, work hard, wait, be patient. God's best is coming and you should eat the first of the crops. And that's like, yeah, I should eat the first of the crops, right? You get a little, little giddy up in your step, but we can misunderstand that too, because what he's saying is you can't feed the word of God to anybody if you're not eating of it first. It's funny, you know, you look as we go down in this scripture, Paul says in verse seven, hey, also, here's all these examples. Think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding and everything. You ever done that before? You ever had someone come up to you and they have questions, they have thoughts, feelings, and concerns. And they're like, hey man, I'm really going through something. Uh, uh, can you just really help me through this? I'm like, listen, man, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray about it. You know what I mean? Like, that's what Paul feels like he's saying when I read this. He's just like, good luck. But the more that I thought about it, as I'm reading these scriptures, as I'm reading these examples that he gives to Timothy and really essentially to us, it's funny. He says, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. But when you think about it, if a soldier wants to celebrate victory, they can't stop fighting the war. If an athlete wants to finish the race, then they can't stop running their race. And if a farmer wants to see the fruits of his labor, then he can't stop working towards the harvest. You see that? perseverance and the strength of God's grace available to us in Jesus to press through the pain, to persevere. The Lord gives us the understanding that even in our suffering, he is sovereign and savior, regardless of how painful these situations are, he is using them. They are purposeful. But some of you come in here tonight and you are frustrated you keep asking God to put you in a different position or situation because honestly, the one that you're in is hard and it hurts and you don't really know how to handle it and you don't like it. But my question to you would be, why would God change your position or situation if your joy and satisfaction is ultimately found in your position and situation rather than in God himself and the purposes that he's called you to regardless of how hard they are to walk in? I don't want you to be an ordinary soldier. I want you to be an outstanding one. And better than what I want is that's what God wants. And your trials will turn you into Tamahagane. Your trials will make you into Tamahagane. And right now you're going, what the heck are you talking about? I don't know how much you guys know about ancient Japanese sword making off the top of your head, but after watching a documentary, I'd imagine I know more than you. Um, 
Here's the thing. I'm sure you don't know what a katana is, but I would be willing to bet that the majority of you know what a samurai is. We've seen them in cultural things all over the place. But for those of you that are in the dark and are turning to your friend like, what is that? I'll tell you. Um, A samurai was an ancient Japanese warrior, and the weapon that they used was a sword called a katana. And a katana wasn't just like any other sword. I actually, I just so happen to have one, which is fantastic. Thank you. My wife stays armed, which I don't, I don't know what that says about our marriage, but don't read into it. Here's the thing. A katana, historians said, is the most perfect weapon ever forged. I'm no expert. That feels like a compliment. And the samurai were actually so attached to the sword. They believed that it had its own soul. And the only way that they could be separated from one another was by death. Now, they showed how one of these is made, and it is mind-boggling. I don't know. It was so well-advanced and well beyond its time. I feel dangerous with this thing. I'm just going to let you know. I feel so empowered, sword of the spirit. But let me tell you something. They showed how this thing is made, and it's so advanced. A katana was birthed in a furnace. So they would heat this massive furnace to over 1,000 degrees Celsius, and they would combine iron charcoal, and carbon. Because of how hot it would get, all of the impurities would fall to the bottom. And as the impurities fell to the bottom, it would leave behind a pure steel called tamahagane. Now, they would take all the best parts of the tamahagane after it was extracted. They would send it to a swordsmith. For three months, this swordsmith would hammer it into a block until it started to take shape into a sword. And after he got done with his part, the third and final stage would be that he sent this blade to somebody that would professionally polish and sharpen the sword. Now, what's the significance of that for us? These sword makers managed to create a nearly perfect steel, which is what baffles historians to this day. Just enough carbon was retained on the inside of the blade to withstand attackers. It kept the blade soft and it made it shock resistant. But the outside of the blade was hard and it was really good for slashing and attacking. And here's the significance of this, because if the blade is too brittle, it's going to break. But if it's too soft, it's completely useless. But they managed to create a perfect mixture of toughness and softness, a hard cutting edge and a soft, flexible core. So how does this apply to us, I want you to know that in order to make the most perfect weapon ever forged, it takes 20 men that sleep very little over the course of six months. And even today, if you want one of these, that's what it takes to have an actual katana. And part of what made it so intimidating is the fact that it belonged in the hands of a samurai, which you got to understand in ancient Japan, you couldn't just be like, you know what? I'm really in the market for a new, uh, a new butter knife. And so, you know, I'd really like one of those. That's not how you would get one of these. The only way that you could get one of these Good luck with that. Um, The only way that you could get one of these is you had to have signed your life up for a life of perseverance, endurance, and training as a soldier. That's what made you elite. So tonight for us, I want us to understand something as we are trying to get through so many difficulties in life. This is where the sword makers got it right, but the culture leads you so far off the path. 
The culture says there is no room for the intermingling of carbon and steel. People are either so hard that their intention is only to hurt others because on the inside they're brittle and break easily and so they're off to hurt you first or they are so soft and so easily offended that really they're useless in the battle even though they desperately want to make an impact in the war. And my prayer for you is that we would leave knowing that we can have a hard cutting edge, sharp enough to leave a lasting mark in the war, but that we could also have a soft core so we can absorb attacks from the enemy but make sure that all of our battles are fought from a place of love and commitment to Jesus. You can't Amazon Prime or overnight ship your way to becoming an elite soldier. You can't. It takes perseverance to become a weapon like the katana and have an impact like the samurai did with it throughout history. So let me just say this. Was Paul's preaching at Lystra more powerful when he persevered through a stoning and then went back into that same city to preach? Yes. Was his commitment to Christ the cause of a greater impact due to the thorn in his flesh? Yeah. Will the power of your impact for the kingdom of God be more profound as a result of your perseverance by the grace and the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel? You better believe it. You better believe it. But still, you can look at your trials and think, how do I stay motivated to persevere. I mean, it's great. I can and I should, and it's something that God has made available to me, but how do I stay motivated when I just find myself straight up exhausted? What hope do I have? Well, you look at verses eight through 10. And Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Is this not, does that not seem strange to anyone else here? Like when you initially read that, Paul says, hey, remember my gospel. Also, Timothy, in case you forget crucial parts of that gospel, Jesus was raised from the dead and he's the offspring of David, just in case you forget. So why would Paul remind Timothy of these things? He's reminding him of significant points of the gospel because believe it or not, there are other gospels out there. He says, remember, Timothy, Jesus is the offspring of David. That means remember that even when it's hard and you want to give in, don't give in, dig in. Because God didn't all of a sudden decide that things were bad on earth, and so he sent Jesus. No, all of history pointed to the coming of Jesus, rests on the crucifixion of Jesus, and points forward to him coming again. Life didn't all of a sudden become about your relationship with God by chance or at random. It has always and will always be about your relationship with God. He says, Timothy, don't forget that Jesus was raised from the dead. That means remember, just like I wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Timothy, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, our faith is in vain and we should be pitied above all others. But know this as you find yourself in a seemingly impossible situation, even death cowers at the cross of our King. Paul says, you're not talking to anybody. You're talking to an eyewitness. I saw him raised. I spoke with the 12. They saw him raised. 500 others 
saw Jesus raised at one time. And so listen, Jesus Christ was raised. By the cross, your debt was paid. By the resurrection, that payment cleared. And by grace through faith, your credit is in perfect standing with God tonight as a result of what Jesus did for you on that cross. But you got to remember that Paul suffers for the same gospel that he preaches. Not an easy life, but a life of purpose. And purpose ain't cheap. Purpose doesn't come cheap. The telltale sign of a believer is that they can smile in their trial. Not all the time, not in a fake way, but to truly be able to look at your chains and say, I may be in chains, I may be struggling, I may be fighting, but in Christ, I am free. I might not make it out of here, but you try putting a gate on the good news and it'll push straight through the padlocks that you've tried to put over top of it. Paul suffers for this gospel so that others might hear it and when they hear it, that they would believe not just in Jesus, but in the risen Christ. He closes so beautifully in verses 11 through 13. He says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. You know what's funny about that is those aren't Paul's words. I mean, they are Paul's words, but he's reciting a hymn from the early Christian church. That's something they sang in their synagogues, the same way that we're about to sing again. Awaiting execution in the midst of his suffering, Paul breaks out in song. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Nothing surpasses the glory of knowing and being with Jesus. You aren't exempt from your struggle. You are free to struggle and to sing through your suffering. And when your faith feels fragile, know that God's faithfulness towards you has never so much as cracked. His promises still stand. You know, it's funny, people like to talk about breakthrough. It's a really hot word in Christianity, I feel like, breakthrough. People want breakthrough in areas of their life where, where they feel barricaded in, rightfully so. But you know, nobody really talks about how breakthrough occurs. I mean, we just, we chop it up to something very simple. We say, well, God will bring breakthrough. Yes, that's right, congrats. But the reality is, breakthrough doesn't avoid pain, it attacks it. Jesus says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Not over your weaknesses, not under your weakness, not around your weakness. He says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. It meets you in your darkest moments, in your worst fears, in your greatest sufferings, in your most painful places, in those wounds that you have failed to address. Breakthrough occurs when that power strengthens you in your pain, pushes you through the pain, and brings you into breakthrough well beyond that pain. You have to lean into the pain and you will find God there because in the midst of our darkest trials is often where we will find the light of Christ because you can't press through anything that you won't even press into. Pain is not the absence of God's presence. It is where you find out that his power is made perfect in your weaknesses. 
You know, it sounds odd and you may not believe me, but I really don't care. I miss some of my greatest struggles and trials. I miss them. I don't miss the actual struggle. I don't miss the suffering. But what I do miss is the comfort and power of God being so palpable in the midst of them. And for some of you tonight, as you've been sitting here listening to the message, this has been encouraging. You've been able to say, I know what I need to get out of this. And that's amazing. Praise God. But then there's others of you that are saying, you're telling me life is hard. Thanks. Appreciate that. But let me just remind you that in your struggle, whatever it is that you're dealing with, at the very heart of God's ministry is the deliverance of his people. In Exodus 3, God says, I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, flowing with milk and honey. Colossians 1 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, deliverance from is step one. He says, I am delivering you from. God didn't free Israel so that they could go camping for 40 years in the wilderness and sing Kumbaya. He said, I am delivering you to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. He said, I'm delivering you from the domain of darkness. Not so you can sit in a dimly lit room and be like, I have so many questions. That's not what he's doing. He delivers you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Deliverance to is always the goal. It's always the move that God is making in your life. Now it's a constant process of delivering you from one thing and into another. Be grateful for where God has brought you from, but don't fail to press into the things that he has promised. You might be going through a lot tonight, but I'm telling you, do not cancel an order that is in the process of being delivered. Press through the pain. Be strengthened by the grace that is available to you in Jesus. Be certain that God loves you and wants a relationship with you because you know the certainty of the resurrection and that you have a place in the family of God as sons and daughters. And you can be certain that because of that, victory is yours. A lot of you are in here tonight and you come to every alternative and you are looking for an answer. You are praying for an answer and you're missing it. You are praying to the answer. Deliverance is here in his name is Jesus. Jesus doesn't just have an answer for you. He is the answer that your soul is dying for. Your impact is going to be as powerful as your ability to persevere through your pain. When Jesus persevered through the cross, he didn't just die for your sins. He rose for your salvation. When the stone was rolled away and Jesus stepped out of that tomb, he didn't invite you to just step into new life. He said, I want you to step into abundant life. People had the intention of killing him, but God's intervention always conquers human intention. Jesus was delivered from death to life. And whatever it is that you're going through right now, I want you to know that deliverance is available to you in the very same way tonight whatever it is that you're going through. As we're here and we're sitting in this moment, I just want to invite you to not only sit in the stillness of what is happening right now, but we have 
places where you can pray, leaders. There are wounds that you must address or you are always going to feel like victory is not yours. But it is. He's bringing you from so that you can go to. And that's already happened by the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. God, I pray for these people tonight that are here and they have, they have questions, they have doubts and they have fears. They have things that they're not really sure how to handle. But God, they're not called to handle them on their own. So God, as we step into this time of worship, I pray that you would do what only you can do. And God, we mean that. Break chains, bind up wounds, bring people from the cross and into the empty tomb so that they wouldn't just know that they can have life, but they can have it abundantly. Life that goes beyond what we know now and goes beyond. The breakthrough isn't necessarily in the pain that we feel now. True breakthrough rests beyond this world and it's with you for eternity. Nothing surpasses the glory of knowing you and being with you. God, I pray that as these people pray, as we come together as a group at the alternative, that you would bring them into knowing and understanding that you are bringing them from and to because you are good, you are sovereign, you are God, even in the midst of our deepest pains. God, do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name.